the panel, RNZ National, we have Alan Blackman, Nawantis Marakon this afternoon. I'm Wallace Chapman, good to be with you. Uh, State Highway 2, Karangahake Gorge, road closed. This is 3.40pm due to a serious crash in the Karangahake Gorge area. State Highway 2 is closed between Normanby Road and Dean Crescent, so delay your journey there. Also, uh, down south uh, in Otago, serious crash, State Highway 1, Milton. Uh, A serious crash has been reported on State Highway 1, Middleton near the intersection with Melville Ave. Delays through that area likely also. Annual migration records have hit new highs, with more people arriving in Aotearoa than ever in the year to July. A net migration gain of 96,200 in the July uh, 2023 year, according to Stats NZ. The 208,400 migrant arrivals in the year to July 31st was also the highest number on record for an annual period. But the number of Kiwis leaving our shores also rose to an annual loss of 39,400. With us to discuss is NZEI economist Peter Wilson. Welcome, Peter. Good afternoon, Wallace. How do you read these latest figures? I see, Peter, uh, gosh, almost nudging 100,000 um, people coming in. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty um, amazing figure. Uh, we certainly haven't seen that for, uh, for quite a long time. And, you know, in my view, we're, we're, we're reaching, if not passing, the limits of uh, the economy to absorb that many people. And so what might that mean? I'm thinking actually off the top of my head, Peter, housing. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the thing with, uh, with migrants is we have to remember they're people and they, have, they need somewhere to live. They get sick, so they'll need to go to doctors and maybe to hospital. They probably have kids who need to go to school. So migrants, it's not just a case of looking at, you know, have they got a job? Uh, we have to look at uh, what impact are they going to have on uh, all of the resources we've got as an economy, that you know that that has a cost, and we've got to factor that against the benefits. Which is something that you've actually raised a bit, uh, Peter. It resonates with you, quoting you. It's important to treat migrants as well as locals. If we don't have the resources to do that, then we have to make a choice between having few migrants or diverting resources away from other areas into the things that migrants need to live good lives here. So that's quite a topic uh, for you. It is indeed, and it's something that uh, my colleague Julie Fry and I at NZIR, we've been uh, talking about and writing about uh, for quite a few number of years now. Uh, and uh, the message, I think, is slowly getting through that uh, there are costs and benefits of migrants. They're great people. They make a great contribution. But... Uh, it's not free to uh, to bring people in. It is a cost. No anything. Thanks, Wallace. Um, thank you so much, Peter. Um, I've got a couple of questions for you. One is, what do you think's driving these high numbers? And, and these, I mean, I think these are pretty extraordinary, really. And my second question, and you kind of touched on this, is how do we ensure these individuals coming through in the communities and families are actually going to be transitioned successfully here as well? Yeah, two two really really good questions. Um, what's driving it is, um, I mean, basically it's it's we've run out of workers. Um, the uh, the labour force in New Zealand is is really strong at the moment. We've got very low unemployment. We've got very high employment, and we've got a lot of people participating in the economy. So uh, 
there's just not many people left. And uh, so uh, employers are looking to uh, to bring in migrants to, to, to fill vacancies across a whole range of jobs. Um, and Peter, do you would you be able to tell us, you know, if there's a cross section of, um, you know, a subset of which sectors are more of of these migrants in terms of immigration numbers? Or oh, look, it, it it really is across all sectors. I mean, we're obviously seeing it in in areas like the health sector and 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 education, um, where we're 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 bringing in doctors and nurses. Um, and, and and teachers, but if if you look at the numbers, it it really is across a lot of uh, the economy um, is is just crying out for workers, and uh, so that's 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 what's driving it. Um, and you know, there's also, but the important point is this is a net number, not a gross number. So this isn't being dri- driven by Kiwis leaving and having to be replaced. We're, Kiwis are leaving, but we're more than replacing them, uh, and they come back. The question about transition is a really, really good one, and and that's an area where I think we, uh, as a country, we probably don't do enough to uh, to, th- mm. to think about migrants. I mean, we we do a little bit for for, for refugees mm. and and help them, but for uh, for a lot of uh, other migrants, the attitude is very much um, you're on your own, you're in a great country, off you go, and we know that that migration is very hard for. Uh, for a lot of people, um, and we we don't really think about how we support them, how the communities can support them, um, mm, so that they really do have a good life it's here. A worth, it's, it's, it's a topic worth returning to, actually, on the panel, Peter. Uh, Alan? Yeah, Peter, um, I was looking at these numbers, and so there were you were talking about gross and net before. So gross, apparently 208,000 people arrived or migrants arrived mm-hmm. and then it said there was a net migration gain of non-New Zealand citizens of about 135,000. So does this mean yep. that 70,000 Kiwis have returned home? Uh, yeah, I mean it, it is a two-way um, street and um, it goes both ways all the time. Mm. There, 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 are, there are Kiwis coming back, um, there, are, there are migrants going. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it, is, it, it is a very dynamic uh, story. So, um, so would that be a lot of Kiwis that have come home, and and you know, would that be maybe a COVID-driven thing that people realise that oh, it's not too bad here and they want to get home? Abs- absolutely. I mean, if you look at the last for the last year, the numbers that came out yesterday, uh, about twenty six thousand um, Kiwis came back, and and sixty five thousand left. So that's the net number. Hmm. So you're getting that churn all the time. Um, you know, people go over overseas. It's not as good as they thought, or they get homesick. Um, yeah. Or you know, I mean, the job market is is doing quite well here. Um, so you know, if you're after a job, um, and you know, if you've got any sort of uh, professional qualification or in the medical profession, then uh, you're you're going to come back home. I guess one final point, uh, Peter, and uh, it's been made by. Our panel listeners is you know where is everyone going to live? For example, in uh, Auckland here, rents are being squeezed. Uh, Auckland, there was a story uh, that prospective tenants are offering bribes. So there are some really uh, real challenges ahead, Peter. Absolutely, and and look, whoever wins the government, I, uh, the election, you know, I really think they're going to have to sit down and and look really carefully at at our overall migration settings. And, and ask those big hard questions. What, what is the number of migrants that we can actually absorb 
in the economy in the next year. And and if it's more than coming in, then we've got to think about putting some caps on some of these visa categories. Gosh, um, yeah. <laughs> Peter, pleasure. Kia ora. Thank you for your time. That's uh, Peter Wilson there, uh, economist uh, for the New Zealand uh, Institute of Educational Research, or the NZIER, rather. And, of course, this might um, affect uh, your sector too. <coughs> oh, no, with, absolutely, um, yeah. International student visas rising to around 28,000. Okay, well, that's I guess that is a very good thing for our sector and certainly for the country if the students do hang around yes. and which seems to be the way that it normally works now. I think that you know international students who do come to university here do tend to want to stay. They they get the work visa after that oh. and um, yeah yeah. Okay. So that's that's got to be a good thing for the country okay. surely. Alan Blackman and Noanthi Samarakone on today's uh, panel. Uh, thank you for your company today. Now to this prisoners need. To Stable housing to avoid reincarceration, says a recent report from the University of Auckland. Those without stable housing are nearly five times more likely to be re-imprisoned within a year of release than those who do have stable housing. 201 people from six prisons were interviewed while they were in prison with a six and a 12-month follow-up as part of the study. The report's lead author, Associate Professor in Criminology, Alice Mills, is with us. Kia ora, Alice. Kia ora, Wallace. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, this, I found this report quite fascinating. Where do or can people stay when they leave prison now? Well, there's a variety of different places that they can stay. Uh, many of them go and live with uh, with whānau, family or, or friends or associates. Uh, sometimes there is uh, supported accommodation available for them, which is particularly for people um, who have been in prison for two years or more. Um, sometimes they will go to kind of homelessness hostels. Uh, and in some occasions, they're able to go back to the housing that they've had before, before prison, although this rather depends on their circumstances. In some cases as well, they are able to, to uh, rent private accommodation, but it does, that is quite difficult for them to do. You asked prisoners, uh, part of this report, what a home meant to them. What yeah. sort of things did you hear back? Yeah, well, what we actually asked as, as, a, as a sort of second part of the study is we asked them why, what a home meant to them and basically how that had helped them to not um, commit crime. And what we found is that, that people would suggest that if somewhere was a home, if it felt safe. Uh, and this is particularly important for the women in the study because many of the, the women had experienced um, domestic violence. So as a consequence of that, if, if a house was going to be a home and was going to help them uh, stay away from crime, then it had to be a safe space. We also found it was really important for people to have a sense of control over, over their home, over that space, in terms of setting the boundaries as to who can come in. Uh, and that very much enabled them to stay away from things like drugs and violence, um, etc. It also was really good if it, it kind of was stable in the sense of actually providing them with a secure base, somewhere to kind of reflect upon and somewhere to actually um, kind of stabilise their lives so that they could engage in things such as employment, treatment, uh, but also have, have their whānau, have their, fam- their family, particularly their children, uh, either to stay with them or as a space to parent their children in. Right. Noanthi, what are you hearing here? What questions do you have? Wow. I'm just sort of trying to break it all down. Um, what do you think are the solutions here, Alice? I mean, oh. you just... Like, where do you start? 
That's that's a really great question, and there, we've got several kind of uh, recommendations. I mean, the first thing that I think we need to bear in mind is that this is a, uh, a particularly an issue for Māori. Mm. Of course, not only because of the overrepresentation of Māori in the prison population, but also because we found that Māori were more likely to be living in unstable housing after release, and more likely to find it hard to find house, very hard, sorry, to find housing after release. So I think there is a need for some Māori-led approaches, Māori-designed approaches that are very much designed to kind of account for diverse Māori realities and experiences, and also really to, to, to take on board a much more whānau-centred approach to reintegration as well. So a, a way of actually supporting whānau to be able to support those coming out of prison rather than just um, mm. looking at the individuals. And do you also see, I guess, iwi, I mean, I guess when you say a Māori-centred approach, I mean, I think iwi need to kind of lead the charge here as well in terms of trying to create um, a level of sustainability but also the opportunity for work and, you know, um, reintegration, I guess, as well for these individuals. Yes, certainly. Um, and we, there are some initiatives um, starting to emerge around the country in relation to this now, uh, where we um, have taken the lead on things. But it's it's kind of, it's really important in, in many ways for me not to tell them what to do, because they will know much more about the experience of course of their family members, etc. Ellen. Yeah, Alice, I was again looking through uh, the numbers in your study. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, you're saying three quarters uh, Māori and three quarters had children. And the really surprising thing to me was that most had served sentences of two years or less. Now, sort of not wanting to minimise sort of crime or anything like that. I mean, that's on the relatively minor end of the spectrum. And it seems terrible to me that there's a one in five chance of these people who have committed, you know, let's be honest, relatively, you know, well, not major crimes anyway, that they're on the, you know, one in five of them are on the track back to, to prison. And I mean, what, what can we do about this? And the other question I have is um, what ages did, did age tend to have a factor as well? One could imagine that it's much harder probably to find housing if you're, you know, 50 something when you come out of jail, as opposed to when you're 20 something. Is, is that also a variable? Mm. Um, that's an interesting point. We actually didn't find any connections in relation to age and whether or not somebody yeah. was likely to be housed. But one right. thing that Gosh. we do know is that in general there is a lack of supported accommodation and options for people who are under 25. So actually um, just the kind of wider literature suggests um, that actually young people are more likely to find it, find it harder than those, for example, in their 50s. Yeah. Gosh, um, wow. Just that point on short sentences, of course, because we were looking at uh, basically people that were being released from prison, we, uh, we were bound to include more short-term uh, sentence mm, prisoners sure. in there just because of the turnover. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things that we really need to bear in mind is that often, up until fairly recently, they haven't had access to a huge amount of housing that is provided by kind of, well, funded by corrections and provided by by uh, various um, other kind of community organisations. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the other thing to bear in mind is that in some jurisdictions, short sentence prisoners will receive a housing assessment on um, when they come into prison and there may be measures taken to actually save their housing so that it's there for them when they when they come out. Right. We don't do that here in Aotearoa. We don't have that early assessment to see if it's possible no, to prevent the loss of housing. Now, uh, Alice, uh, five before we leave you, I've got to make comments. Very timely discussion, you know, talking about uh, um, recidivism and how to get on top of it because that's been very timely with our Act's uh, policy announcement today. Now, David C came out today saying he wants to increase the prison population back to 10,000 people. More people should be in prison, he says. Uh, a comment on that. 
yes, I mean, I think really I just have to draw on Bill English here and that notion that, that prison is a fiscal and moral failure. Um, I know that um, ACT were, uh, were basically suggesting that uh, prison would be a place where people could receive rehabilitation. Um, but the current, the current evidence is, is that that often doesn't happen. And I'm extremely dubious about the idea that it would happen in prisons. All right, Professor, Associate Professor in Criminology, Alice Mills, thank you very much for your time here on the panel. And we may well return to a couple of those themes uh, tomorrow afternoon on the panel. 26 past four, but to this, you have been waiting for this as well. Uh, we had such a wonderful response. Uh, an item in The Guardian got my eye. What's more romantic than asking the man or woman of your dreams to spend the rest of their life with you, doing it in front of an audience, apparently, the unstoppable rise of the public marriage proposal, which got me thinking, how did you propose or how were you proposed to? Uh, one Fiona says, partner rolled over in bed at 11.30 at night, said, what do you reckon? 33 years later, still married. Uh, another one here, my husband got the barrister to write, marry me, on the flat white. Lucky because I was just about to complain how long the coffee was taking. The, the, the barrister or the barista? <laughs> the barista. <laughs> Oh my goodness! For, <laughs> interesting. For the uh, for for the nation's interest, it is written as barrister. <laughs> I just thought you might like to know. I mean, I get things wrong, but not that wrong. It's a legal cafe, obviously. Anyway, anyway, uh, it took him four goes to get the spelling uh, to, to, get, to get it right, but it still took me seventeen years to actually marry him. We're oh, just wow. about to celebrate our sixth wedding anniversary and twenty-three years together. But with us now is Annie in Rotorua. Annie, kia ora. Kia ora. What's your story, Annie? Well, um, my husband proposed as we were doing a tandem bungee jump. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Very good. (laughs) Walk us through it. So you're tied up by your feet, and just, just just after you leap off, what does he yell? Well, he actually yelled, oh, swear word, will you marry me? (laughs) (laughs) And he likes to say that I answered on the rebound as well. Oh, very good. Very good. Keeping him waiting here for a few seconds. (laughs) So this is the Carwado River in Queensland. Is that right, Annie? It is, absolutely. And can I ask, it might be personal, are you still married? We are still married, yes, and it's our 26th wedding anniversary Ooh. today. Oh, oh wow, congratulations. Cool. Yeah. congratulations. Yeah. Oh. On behalf of all the panel staff and uh, Ms. Alvani, a happy 26th wedding anniversary. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, aside from listening to the wonderful show, The Panel, do you have any special things planned? <laughs> Clearly not. <laughs> Clearly not. Oh, no, no that... have a special meal, but I've I've been a bit unwell, so I've got some sort of virus. So we're going to do something nice on Friday. Oh, Lovely. very good. Thanks yeah. for being with us, Annie. So there you go. So keep those coming. Um, uh, uh, how did you propose, or how will you propose to? Do we have any stories around the panel at all, or not? Feel free. Mm. Yeah, just yep on the couch. Yep. It's terrible. I know. I know. I know. Terrible. That's quite romantic. Well, okay. My story. Am I I I here? We go. Am I allowed to tell my story? So, so, so. Um. Uh. I wasn't necessarily the 
marriage type, but we were driving <laughs> past a, a, a vintage store and tap of the store a ring. I love that. I thought, well, we're going to our going to Tokyo on our first ever trip. This is many, many years ago. Mm. Ring Tokyo. Shall I propose in Tokyo? So I wow. bought the I bought the ring, put it in my luggage on the on air flight, put it in a, a Unichem bag in the top of my luggage on air. Uh, Mid flight, Tabitha says, <laughs> says, "Can I just get in your bag? I need a pen." I said, "There's no pens in the luggage. There's no pens. It's a big bag. I'll do it. Check." I said, "No, you won't. I've checked for you. There's no pen." And I said, "Well, let me check." I said, "No, I have thoroughly checked. There's there are no, no pen. pen. There's no pen in there." Silence for five minutes, and then, "Do you trust me in our relationship?" Because relationships are about trust. And I said, "Are they? Do you think so?" So good. It was a very tense moment, and it was one of the most tense flights I've ever had. But I proposed to her in Tokyo, oh, midday at a restaurant. Brilliant. As soon as you landed, hopefully. Not far off. Okay, no. <laughs> there you go. So, so tell us about your proposal. <laughs> Text me to, that's my 